I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to The Poisoner's Cabinet. I'm Sinead. And I'm Nick. And this is your weekly podcast exploring the lives of the great poisoners and poisoning cases from across the centuries and creating curious cocktails inspired by the tales that we tell. And it's episode 22. Do little ducks. That's a bingo thing. It is a bingo thing. Do not play bingo. I do not play bingo. Do you play bingo? I can imagine you in a mecca bingo (laughs) with like a shandy or something. Well, oh, that's even crueler than the bingo side of it. With, with a, clutching a shandy. Clutching a shandy with a bum bag with your special pens in. <laughs> no, I don't play bingo. I played it once. It was in a bingo hall in Dover, which is Classic. a godless, godless place. And uh, yeah, I shouted out at the wrong time and everyone glared at me. Oh, I'm surprised you came out alive, to be honest. I nearly didn't. And speaking of delightful people, I think it's time to thank our Patreon subscribers. I wonder where you were going with that then for a moment. <laughs> and we need to thank... Yes, we do. Uh, Elizabeth Dent, Mirandia Berthold, and Percival Disney. Jess P. Frankie Phoenix. Great gangster name. <laughs> David Keane from 50B Movie Club. Yay. Alison Precious. Ooh. Kieran. And Jeff Ayres. Fiona Eaglesham. Stephanie and Debbie Sharp. You are all incredibly beautiful, wonderful, sexy, sexy little poisoners. Lovely people. If you are interested in supporting us on Patreon and getting lots more content from the Poisoners Cabinet, go and visit Patreon. Or just come and talk to us on any of the social medias. Any of the social medias. Any of the social medias, and we'll tell you all about it. We have another promo for you this week as well, and it is from The Ghost Story Guys. Great podcast. Great pair of guys as well. So funny, all round, really good fun. Have a listen. I'm Brendan Storer. I'm Ian Gibbs. We're the Ghost Story Guys. And every two weeks, we bring you true stories of the paranormal. With a healthy side of skepticism. Do you really need to lead with the skepticism? I just feel like it'll save us angry emails later. Yeah, because that's the only reason we get angry emails. Okay, look, there's no pleasing some people. (laughs) I saw a goddamn shadow man walk across the living room, but God help me if I tell them the Warrens are full of shit. Anyways, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox, and everywhere else podcasts live. That was great. I don't know if they'll play that, but it's great. Yay, we like the Ghost Story guys. How are you, Nick? 
I'm a well, it's holiday week for me, so I'm not at work, which is lovely. But you're not anywhere fun. You're not, just no, in, I can't go anywhere fun. Just in my living room. Well, I, say, I, I feel very bad because actually my parents listened to this and I went to see them. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so I went to see, yes, I went to see his family, which was lovely. Sounds <laughs> lovely. But Nick, most importantly, yes, are you ready to drink cocktails and talk about poison? Oh, I think we probably should. Or drink poison and talk about cocktails? Let's not. Cocktails it is. Well, before we can embark on our story, we must, we must, we must have a drink in hand. We definitely must. To help us on our merry way. As ever, we have released our secret ingredient on social media earlier this week, which is inspired by the tale that we tell and will flavour the cocktail of the week. And this week, Nick, the secret ingredient is... It's a bit random. It's a bit weird. Go on. <laughs> so the secret ingredient is Francois Annabal Estrez. Okay, I have comments. <laughs> I'm sure you do. A 17th century Carthusian monk <laughs> who has inspired inspired me greatly. Okay, so inspiration. Now, we don't always have a flavour in the cocktail, but a, a 17th century monk. Yeah, a Carthusian monk. Yeah, it's oh, important oh, oh, that he oh, is a, a Carthusian monk. Carthusian monk. Where is Carthusia? Please, do tell. <laughs> I don't know. It's a French thing. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sect of... Catholicism's category of monk. Please tell me you haven't had a 17th century monk in your house just infusing various alcohol. Yes. I went to France because he's a saint so I found some relics and I've got saint infused gin. This is now a thing. (laughs) Well it's nice that you've um, you've upgraded from the vanilla infused rum to Exactly. We've gone from vanilla to a saint so come on. (laughs) Positively holy. Well done. Well I'm intrigued to know what are you going to make? Going to make a rye hummingbird. A rye hummingbird? Yes. Ooh, not heard of. Not a heard variation of. of a gin hummingbird and see if you can tell the difference. Oh my God, you changed the gin for rye. I know, it's mad. <gasps> mad, he's a madman. Yeah. Sounds beautiful, sounds delightful, sounds worrying. Okay, well I'm intrigued to see what we will shake up with this, but we are going to go to our non-isolation kitchens because we're together again. Ooh. Yay! And shake up a storm. See you in a minute. See you in a minute. And we're back. Hello. Sue Hummingbird. Yes. Now this is very pretty. It's very nice. I'm sorry that I don't have as fancy glasses as you do, so we have to basically, every cocktail I make here is put in a martini Just glass. slam it with martini glasses. Indeed. But it's very gorgeous. It's very well, it golden tastes... hue. Yes, I just hope it tastes nice. Why the rye hummingbird then? It's a very nice beverage that I was made over this past weekend. And then I thought, oh, I must try and make, recreate this at home. And this just so happens it coincided with this week's story. Talk well, us through it. we have... Rye. Shocking. Lemon juice. Lovely. Has honey syrup and a little extra something. Is it benedictine? It's not benedictine. Oh, is it not? It's not. <laughs> oh, it's relic infused. It's relic infused. Very confused water. It is a tasty, tasty beverage that Francois Anibal Estrez was the first one to write down the full recipe for in 1605. <laughs> Your favouritest, favouritest no. French, no. French ingredient. No. No. <laughs> It's it's not chartreuse. Oh, for God's sake, I walked into it. (laughs) I just, I was blinded by the nice name. I should have seen it coming. I let myself dream. Oh, God, what kind of chartreuse? A green chartreuse. Oh, good. Oh, the best one. (laughs) Your favourite Bloody hell. There is about a tiniest amount. When you say tiniest amount. one teaspoon. So it is the smallest, smallest of amounts. Well, we're going to dive in, try the rye hummingbird. I think that's delightful. It's not unpleasant. (laughs) 
Well, that's damning with faint praise, isn't it? <laughs> it's not a, It's Well, I'm still alive. It passed the first test. I didn't go blind. With rage! I don't know about that, to be honest. Oh, and I'm it. not just being a horrible, horrible yeah, bitch about the chartreuse. It's not that. It's subtle. I, I know, but I can still taste it. It's, well, that's what it's there for. You couldn't taste it, but no point in having it in there. I know. And I would go with the latter there. It's very sharp. Second sip, second sip. <laughs> I, I can't decide. I'm sorry. I'm honestly on the fence on this Fine. one. The lemon, the honey, the rye. Rye is nice. Yeah, Nick, it's the chartreuse. <laughs> it's the chartreuse every time. I just know it's there. See, I, I should, know it's I said, there. I should not have told you it was in there and you would love it. Um, I think a lot of people would like it. A lot of people would like That's it. That's because they're right. <laughs> it's me. It's me. It's okay. I, I'm sorry, Nick. Well, it's, it's the last time I make you. But you time. really like it. I love it. I think it's great. And we have had cocktails where I've really liked them and you've just gone, bleh. Well, this is true. Give it here. <laughs> no, I'm still going to drink it. Hell has not frozen over yet, Nick. <laughs> this is a good one for people to mix up. Most of you will now have chartreuse because of the legend of which we have created around it. I am probably firmly in the minority. <laughs> have I made you a drink with yellow chartreuse before? I think you have. Which is a lot less herby. It's a much subtler drink. But the green one is just the... The, is the green just, one is quite potent, yes. It is just the pus of witches. And not good witches. <laughs> you tell that to Francois Annabelle de <laughs> <laughs> I will tell it to him. He can come here right now and I'll tell him... I'll give him a list of reasons why he should have made a better liqueur. Well, the rye hummingbird. Firmly in Nick's hand. Mine... I, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it on a on a trip, sort of. I'm still going to drink it. What story are you going to tell us this week? I I'm going to tell you a story, but you have to you have to remember. Okay. So you have to cast your minds back so very, very far to episode eight. Week? Do you remember the case of George Bodle? I do remember the case of George Bodle. And the trial of his grandson, John, for his, for his murder. For yes. the poisoned coffee. For the poisoned coffee. If you don't remember, then go and listen to it now. Yes. Pause now. Go listen. We'll wait. Because I was very funny. You were very funny. <laughs> I was very good. <laughs> that is episode. one of our best episodes, I think. I it think was the PC... Morris. PC Morris. PC, PC Morris. Morris. PC Morris is all of us. He is a hero. <laughs> a statue needs to be erected in his honor. We have space for them now. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> so in that episode, we introduced a character who is now quite famous in the world of toxicology and poisons, a James Marsh. (gasps) James Marsh was a chemist working at the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich. The Royal Arsenal was a military research facility that developed explosives and ammunition and guns and all sorts of unpleasant things that go bang. It was a fun place to work. It was a fun place. I'm sure it was. It got to blow things up all day. Well, not every day. Well, most days. Tuesday is blowy uppy day. (laughs) Tuesday is blowy uppy day. (laughs) Wednesday is sweepy sweepy day. During the trial of John Bodle in 1832, James Marsh had been drafted in as an expert witness, a chemist, to perform tests to prove that the victim had died from arsenic poisoning. So Marsh, at the time, say we're looking at 1832, he performed the standard test. He mixed his suspect sample with hydrogen sulphide and hydrochloric acid. If arsenic was present, then these chemicals would react and produce arsenic trisulfide, which appears as a yellow residue. However, this yellow residue would not last. And when it came to presenting that to the jury, sometimes weeks or months after the actual test had been performed, that colour had faded, it had gone, the test had spoiled. Mm. And it was left to the jury to accept the word of this expert that when I did this test, that turned yellow. Even though what they were seeing in front of them now was a clear liquid. Which is tenuous at best. Which is tenuous at best. And also from a jury at this time, science is only just really becoming a thing. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's something that people still have to see things to believe them. So you've got a scientist there who's probably coming out with some quite technical babble. And these are these are not stupid people in the jury, but they are common everyday men well they would be all men at this point farmers and middle class people and things like that who probably wouldn't necessarily understand the in-depth science so you would you were taking it on faith that this chap in front of you knew what he was talking about the earth revolves around the sun burn him (laughs) so this didn't always go over particularly according to plan and especially in the case of john bodle the jury found him innocent which really rather annoyed marsh because he was absolutely convinced that he had performed this test accurately and arsenic was there and you can understand on his side of things you have to believe me yes. i've spent <laughs> hours and hours and hours i'm a scientist god damn it training for this i know what i'm talking about this white powder was yellow yeah but it's not yellow now exactly oh, that's exactly it? what it was and even more frustrating was that only a few years later john bodle actually confesses to the murder of his grandfather Ugh. um so James Marsh is vindicated that he knew he was guilty all along, but this the tests that they had available just weren't accurate. And for some of the people, as you said in the jury, it's a bit like standing up saying, this cat was a pig but a week ago. Yeah, well, exactly, yes. <laughs> so he sets out to come up with a better test for this. And it takes him four years of experimenting and developing on existing scientific knowledge. But in 1836, he is successful. He made a cat pig. <laughs> <laughs> you were supposed to be testing for arsenic. Oh, shit. What he did make was a simple glass apparatus. Oh, <laughs> why is that funny? I don't know. A gas apparatus that was not only capable of detecting minute traces of arsenic, but also measuring how much arsenic there was. So you started by adding your 
sample. Now this could have been the stomach contents, a bit of body tissue or some food or something like that. You have your sample of what you want to test into a glass vessel. That glass is then filled with zinc and acid. Now if arsenic is in this sample it will then produce arsine gas and hydrogen and then that would funnel through these clever little glass tubes and what have you and you could ignite the, that flame that gas that came out okay. you could ignite it and then what you would do is you would take a ceramic bowl something white and hold it over the flame like you do when you get soot if you hold a, something over a candle you yeah. get a, like a soot deposit exactly the same process and it would leave a sheen of metallic arsenic on the inside of this cool bowl which is very very clever yeah very very clever and not only would that detect arsenic because you would have that there hmm. but also you could then compare that sample to previously done tests so you'd say okay so on this one i know i've got five grams of arsenic in this sample mm-hmm. and it produces this result on this test and then the next mm-hmm. one is 10 grams and it produces this size of uh, stain on this bowl so then you could you would have a whole array of control bowls which you have specific quantities of arsenic in very clever and a booming time for the bowl industry as well. <laughs> absolutely it's fascinating a lot of us we have the benefit of high school or, or you know a, a secondary school education of doing chemistry and these tests seem kind of very rudimental to mm. us now these are the sort of tests you would do in the classroom not about arsenic obviously not dragging a body and going who killed him but back then no 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 okay. yeah, well absolutely and so now we have an idea of how chemicals work and how they react but with this new method that he devised you could detect as little as 0.02 milligrams of arsenic is that a lot that's 0.02 milligrams is a two thousandth of a gram this is not a lot that's not a lot at all. No, that's, that's a very small amount. I don't understand measurements. If us measuring cocktails together has taught you nothing, Nick, I don't know measurements. You can detect very, very, very small amounts of arsenic. Tiny. And you, it would only detect arsenic as well. There are a couple of other things that would also produce a similar result, but then you could easily dismiss them with a further chemical reaction. This I do know, that the Marsh test was exclusively for arsenic, yep. which paved the way for many other poisons and poisoners in future. But right now, arsenic, ha! We have you. We have you. I mean, hurrah for James Marsh. I mean, his test was celebrated throughout sort of scientific circles as a fantastic piece of rational thought and experimentation and a great result. But it wasn't until several years later that it had its very sort of first public outing in a murder case. And this murder case is credited as the first trial that really relied on forensic toxicology for its conviction. And that was the case of Marie Lafarge. Marie Lafarge. I'm also going to tell you I have this tale. There's two tales. There's two tales. Two stories. So Marie Lafarge was born in Paris in 1816. The daughter of Colonel Capel, who was an artillery officer and one of Napoleon's favourites. Oh, really? Yes. So quite a... Prestigious. Exactly the word. Quite a prestigious family. I mean, she was said to be descended from Louis XIV. Then further back, going to Henry III. And even further back to Charlemagne himself. Okay. Louis XIV. Fabulous hair. Uh, Well, quite. And this was all through her grandmother, who was an illegitimate... Who slept with all of them? Who was an illegitimate daughter of the Duke of Orléans. Lots of fans. Lots of fans. Oh, a huge amount of fans. And big wigs as well, no doubt. But... But it did not last. Her father dies suddenly in a hunting accident no. when she was 12 years old. If you will go hunting. Well, well yeah, quite. You're only stupid before, really, isn't it? Um, Depends on what he was hunting, really. Rabbits. <laughs> you hunt rabbits. Those vicious, vicious rabbits. <laughs> and her, while her mother remarried shortly after, um, she also died seven years later. Oh. So, boo, we say. She is adopted by her maternal aunt. At what age? Um, we're looking at about 18. 
Oh, okay. She's she's nearly a woman. Or quite, yes. And especially in those days, yes. So she's old maid. Old maid by that point, absolutely. But unfortunately, her aunt, the aunt and Marie, do not much like each other. Mm. They don't particularly get on. I mean, the adopted parents, they I mean they treat her well and they send her to the best schools. Of course. To get you out of the house. We'll get you out of the house, absolutely. Um, and she was given an education worthy of her elevated status, but then she was not allowed to forget that she was the poor cousin, really, oh. at, her, at home. Aunt or the adoptive parents were far more prestigious or no, wealthy, um, if she was the, or is, is it just that she's not allowed to forget that she is not uh, yes, one of theirs? because I don't think there was a huge amount of wealth there. The mother remarried, so any money she had had may have gone to her other, her second husband. Marie's left not a huge amount. She goes to the best schools, so she is mixing with the, the children of the aristocracy. Oh, yeah. So people with real money people with <laughs> not this fe- not this everyday not money this every, not this everyday oh I, I can afford nice things this is oh, i'm going to go buy a palace today because <laughs> i'm bored <laughs> so she's mixing with all these yeah the other daughters um of real fancy 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 folk it would it really did sort of quite damage her pride she tries to emulate her contemporaries and she just really really oh, isn't it's a, it's a true high school outsider tale isn't it? <laughs> I mean, she does become extremely envious when her friends do start to marry increasingly rich husbands and she's left there going, hello, can I have a husband, please? But she she wants to get married. She wants to try and make, to fulfil her place that she thinks she deserves in society. But that decision of who she's going to marry is not left to her. No. It is down to her her adopted parents now her aunt and uncle and they must be feeling a little bit resentful because they're kind of having to marry her off and scraping the barrel as it were so they've got their own daughters as well that they're oh, oh the, the pick of the bunch are going to them yeah. exactly so the, the, all the fancy chaps are going to their own mm. daughters so it's almost like a Cinderella so it's like, I was just going to um, say she's Cinderella <laughs> Cinderella, Cinderella's she has she has got an inheritance that has come through from her mother Hooray. which leaves her with a marriage dowry of about 90,000 francs which while seems like a huge amount of money in those days is actually fairly average oh I guess 90,000 francs 9,000 pounds going by the 90s exchange rate <laughs> uh, which I think was valid well, at the time it <laughs> um, it's a lot of money but for where she wants to be for the type of marriage she wants to make into the society she wants to be in it's just simply it's not enough at 23 she is still unmarried Ooh. one of her uncles takes over the job of finding her a husband he thinks she, he's going to be able to sort out a suitable match for her but typical men yeah. always thinking they can do a better job and he does oh fine <laughs> actually no he doesn't He's, well no. well d- did he no he, he really doesn't actually did no, he, he just really get doesn't. a blind one-legged man from the street <laughs> unknown to Murray he has actually engages the service of a marriage broker <laughs> yes that was a thing it was a thing that absolutely was a thing. to try and match up eligible young people and they would have a list of requirements mm. so of the the type of person the status this person had the income that this husband might have oh, yeah. to be suitable to marry it's a matchmaker it, it, yeah, have a matchmaker. we not learned from the millionaire matchmaker which i'm sure we've all seen <laughs> or hello dolly and this marriage broker finds an eligible bachelor who has met the criteria set out by marie's Ooh. uncle Enter Charles Lafarge. Charles Lafarge. Charles God, there was a moment Lafarge. there where I thought it was Farage, you said. It's not Farage. <laughs> Lafarge. Run, woman! And he was a big 
coarse man of 28. Ooh, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Don't think it was seen by Marie as necessarily a good, a good No, thing. she's used to polished, she's, lovely, yeah, foppish exactly. men. Exactly. She, she wants the sort of knighting, shining armour, sort of military man, quite dashing. And he is the son of Jean-Baptiste Lafarge, who was a justice, justice of the peace. Reasonably sort of middle-classy sort of background. In 1817, his father had bought an old monastery run by Carthusian monks oh! since the 13th century. Oh, well, well, the coincidences never <laughs> Did you read this story and just go, yes, yes? Well, I did, I did read this story. I go, Carthusian monks, were they the ones who made Chartreuse? I'm sure it was, and I had to Google it. And then I was like, yes, it is! Hooray! Sinead's going to hate it! Arr. God. Fine. So that was fun. So he was made coarse by his constant drinking of Chartreuse, <laughs> which turned him into some sort of horrible Mr. Hyde character. Anyway. The monastery had been run by the monks since the 13th century, but it had fallen into massive disrepair. To try and make his estate profitable, Charles had turned part of it into a foundry, um, but it plunged him into debt. Mm. Though he sort of set up fees of the equipment and, and facilities he would he needed, not to mention the skilled workers they would need to run the equipment. Massive, massive debt. And for the benefit of our listeners, a foundry is? Foundry makes metalwork. Lovely. So it would have been cartwheels, church bells, all that sort of things. <laughs> I used to ring bells. No, you didn't. I, did. I used to be a bell ringer. Oh my in god! Oh, uh, why? It was something to do. <laughs> <laughs> in lieu of smoking and drinking, it and pretty much, yeah. Well, I was about twelve, was I at the time? In lieu of smoking and in drinking, smoking, yeah. When I when she was you grew 12, up in Thanet, mate. <laughs> I was smoking and drinking and would have longed to ring a bell. We just had dreams of people like you over there in Thanet in the hard streets of Ramsgate, ringing your bells, walking around en masse with the bell ringers. Pretty much. You used to get paid for weddings. It's very exciting. Oh, bloody hell. You had a much better job than I did. So in 1939, Charles was bankrupt. What he thought his, was his only opportunity was a good marriage. Oh, a good Some, marriage. Yes, a wife with a large dowry who was going to help him clear his debt and get his estate up and running. And love is just circumstantial. Love really doesn't come into it. As long as she's got a huge, as as a huge dowry. dowry. <laughs> All that matters. All that matters to anyone. Pretty much. <laughs> so to accomplish this, he engages the service as the same marriage broker as Marie's uncle had done. Charles was not overly truthful on his on say application is the wrong word, but with the, the details he presents about himself. Are <laughs> his not, dating video <laughs> his, in his dating video is is not in, entirely accurate. He presents himself as a wealthy ironmaster, property worth more than 200,000 francs, an annual income of 30,000 from the foundry alone. He carries letters of recommendation from the local priests um, and the local constabulary as well, saying what a thoroughly sound, decent fellow he is. A wealthy ironmaster. That's amazing to be able to put that in your CV. ironmaster. I'm an ironmaster. I've mastered metal. Mastered iron. I can master you. A master of metal and women. <laughs> so it's terrible dating people. <laughs> He's just there with his hammers going, oh, I like this hammer. <laughs> just making sparks. Yeah. <laughs> you need to say something. I like metal. Marry me. <laughs> I've got four hammers. This one's called Jim. <laughs> He's a simpleton. This sounds like a perfect match. Uh, for Marie's uncle but he needs to hide the fact that a marriage broker has been involved so he introduces Charles as the son of an old friend and arranges a surprise meeting uh, with Marie at the opera oh fancy seeing you here Charles the son of my dear old friend who I've never seen for years this is my niece fall in love and have babies <laughs> 
That's what happens at the opera. That's what happens at the opera. <laughs> it's a very dramatic place. Marie finds Charles common and repulsive. But he is advertised as the owner of a palatial estate. Well, I don't know. Yeah. She, agrees. she agrees to marry him. She's 23. He's man. 23. She's, I mean, she's getting past it. But, but he owns land. He's got a palatial estate. She's a huge dowry. He has he a palatial is, he estate. He has a huge dowry. He has a palatial estate. <laughs> it's a marriage made in heaven. And they are married on the 10th of August, 1839. Lovely. The couple then leave Paris for Le Glandier, the village... With the Chartreuse Monastery, the Carthusian <laughs> That's how you see it, isn't it? <laughs> That's how I see you it. just see a monastery somewhere with Chartreuse it's, flowing it's from the walls. Barrels full of Chartreuse in all the buildings <laughs> when they arrive a few days later. <gasps> to say that Marie is upset is, think of an understatement. She has expected this grand home uh, staff to welcome them in. What she gets is a ruin. The former monastery is in major disrepair. It's damp, rat infested. There are holes in the roof. The foundry that is promised is a ramshackle collection of outbuildings with people who don't really seem to know what they're doing, but they're giving it a go. (laughs) (laughs) And she meets her parents-in-law for the first time. In Marie's eyes, they are little more than peasants. I, th- I think Marie probably has a right to be disappointed in what she's got to. She is a desperate snob. Oh, yes. She is a huge, entitled snob. Well, she's she's <laughs> had to live this life of growing up around high society. All she wants, all she wants is to then be of that level, to be to, to, to finally have a husband, to have a palatial estate where she can lord it over her friends, because clearly they've been lording it over her for ages, uh, yeah. and her aunt's been doing the same thing. So I'll side with her on this one. If she yeah. turns up and thinking finally she gets there and it is a wreck and she's already been playing cinderella scrubbing the dishes for ages with with mice's friends and she <laughs> yeah. turns up and she's upgraded to rats i mean this is somewhere that i think she's probably envisioning that she could invite her aunt and all those friends mm. from school and they can have grand parties and balls and they will be jealous about how successful she's become and the, the place that she's living and it is just a huge, huge, huge disappointment. I mean, in her misery, she locks herself in her room. Mm. The first night she's there, she's locked away. She writes a letter to her husband imploring him to release her from the marriage. Um, she, she slips under the pretty door. Pretty much, yeah, she, slips, <laughs> she slips it under the door um, and threatening to take her own life oh um, if she's forced to live in these this squalor as she, as she sees it see we've gone from Cinderella to Beauty and the Beast but I don't oh, think yes, you, it's, it's, yeah. yes she's trapped in a room and the yeah. and the sideboard is delivering letters and he's a coarse mean man <laughs> in a ruins <laughs> oh it's a Disney fairy tale it is it is exactly that and I don't yeah. feel like it's going to have a happy ending yeah I mean Lafarge himself I mean he is now pretty desperate himself he's relied upon this dowry also her his new wife's connections she knows the names of the people who mm. have got money um, so he's really desperate for this information and so he agrees to make concessions he's not going to release her from the marriage but he does promise not to assert his marital privileges which i think we know what that means oh uh, yes <laughs> he will let her have first use of the bathroom <laughs> he's not gonna yeah he's not gonna force himself on her not gonna do anything which is a nice thing to say want to do until he restores the estate to its original condition and she is happy with the life that he has been able to provide for her. She's all a woman wants. So it's a fancy to... <laughs> ballroom, some nice dresses. That's that's what women want, isn't it? To be, well, I mean, after my marriage, it, yes, that was what I did. I locked yeah. myself in the bedroom until my, my husband made substantial changes to the house and put in a ballroom. <laughs> I said, you shall have no marital rights until I have a ballroom and gowns. Now, was that successful? Well, we're still married. <laughs> <laughs> so, Marie accepts 
this new this is how it's going to be mm. this is how it's going to be from now on she accepts it and she's she calms down she comes out of her room she comes out of her room and the relationship does start to improve oh, over the next few weeks or so quite touching actually um, i'm quite i'm quite moved she i don't know if she gets the thing of starts to see the potential yes. in what she's got a here fixer-upper. it's a fixer-upper it could be magnificent i have yeah. no doubt so Marie is writing letters to her school friends, pretending that she's having a great time, um, and she's trying to help her husband. She's writing letters of recommendation to people she knows in Paris, so Charles can hopefully get some new investors in his business. Hmm. One day in December in 1839, just before he is due to leave on a business trip to Paris, she makes a will, leaving her entire inheritance to her husband. Now this is done on the provisor that he is going to do the same for her, that if he were to die, then all of the, the house all the lands, all his wealth would come to her. But without his her knowledge, not long after leaving, he writes another will, which leaves the home, leaves Le, Le Glandier property to his mother. That bitch! Which is quite rude. Why? What has the mother ever done? I don't know, but that's bizarre. Someone stole my son from me, this <laughs> wife. And sort of done something. She's in a tower with a spinning wheel. She's another fairy tale now, <laughs> exactly, Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's up there going okay how do we manage mash all of these narratives together don't worry i'll work it out <laughs> whilst charles is, is in paris marie writes passionate love letters so the, it seems to be their relationship has changed hmm. quite a lot so she writes him down she sends him her picture oh which is very nice and as well as it was december sends him some christmas cake oh, that's as nice. well in there. he eats some cake and becomes violently ill wait a minute becomes violently ill yeah as we have established in prior previous episodes cholera symptom like symptoms are uh, common yes in those yes. days nausea stomach complaints diarrhea poison is not the first thing that leaps to mind of course in that so he does not think to go to a doctor he thinks, oh, perhaps the cake has been spoiled in transit. It's like a three-day carriage ride to Paris or something like that. It's Foolish no- man. Uh, nothing. nothing will stop a Christmas cake. So, Christmas cake lasts for months. Yeah, I've still got one from three years ago. Okay, you need to throw that out, sitting, Nick. No, it's it's uber-powered. It's, it's, it's extra-matured. It's extra-matured. With all the whiskey in the yeah. world. Can I have some? Oh, uh, yeah. So he's he's nibbled down the, the Christmas had, had cake Christmas and going, oh, oh, I don't feel well. Oh, I don't feel well. I don't yeah. feel well. He returns to Le Grandier a few weeks later on, after quite a success trip he's raised a bit of money nice. but he's still feeling a bit poorly mm. he's still feeling you know not quite right not quite right the caring wife marie puts him to bed feeds him lovely venison and truffles and all manner of tasty things delicious see i could have done a venison and truffle cocktail you could have done a christmas cake cocktail nick you could have yeah. done a christmas cake well, cocktail we had, we had done the cake i thought it's quite it's fruity <laughs> cakey sort of. uh, I mean, uh, christmas cake has many many other flavors you could have had truffles. We have truffle oil. Or we could have had chartreuse, which is nicer than everything else. He has his venisons and truffles. <laughs> but almost immediately, Charles again is suffering. Yeah. Stomach cramps, vomiting. A family physician, Dr. Barden, um, agrees with its cholera-like symptoms. It's going to pass. And he's not at all suspicious when Marie asks him for a prescription for arsenic. What? Mr. Doctor. Can I have some arsenic, please? But this, this is to kill the rats that are disturbing my husband at night. There are <laughs> rats all around the place, all over the place, crawling and gnawing. Husband can't get a good night's sleep because of all this noise. I need some arsenic. Doctor, absolutely. Oh, for God's perfectly sake. Perfectly sensible, perfectly valid reason to get some arsenic is to make sure your husband has a good night's sleep. What the hell? What? Okay, okay, I understand many, many, many cases, many cases of arsenic poisonings start off with we have rats totally rats arsenic nye, 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 nye. now warfarin also uses a medicine these days but what she could have 
just said, I need to kill some rats. Don't say they're disturbing my husband. Don't paint this again Disney-like <laughs> picture. Ratatouille, another bloody one we've got in. Just of him, them nibbling and messing with his hair at night. Oh, they're messing with my husband. It's like, just, just say there's rats. Just say there's rats. Also, if you're a doctor and you're looking at someone vomiting and shitting everywhere, don't give the wife arsenic. Don't just introduce another bloody problem. It, oh, doctors are the greatest poison of them all. Doctors are always the problem. Oh! Okay, right, okay. So the doctor's handing out fucking arsenic. Fine. So the next day, Charles again experiencing cramps, dehydration, nausea. I mean, he's so ill by this point. Does he have the plague now because of the rats? (laughs) He is so ill that his relatives are taking it in turns to to look after him, to sit by his bedside. I mean, he's got both his parents there, his mother and his father there. Yeah, that bitch. That bitch. Um, (laughs) He's also got a young cousin called Emma Pointer or Pointier, um, and a young woman who, another young woman who's also staying with her by the name of Anna Brown. Marie insists on supervising Charles's treatment herself. Of course, she's always by his side with various medicines, uh, gum arabic. She says it always does her well. She says she always keeps a ready supply in a small little malachite box. Oh, I love malachite. That she's got. That's very, that's very poisonery. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. It's a greeny sort of colour, isn't it? Yes, yes. My mother had an amazing necklace of malachite and uh, that necklace broke on the day of her funeral. It was really weird. (laughs) But but despite these remedies, Charles is deteriorating so rapidly that another doctor, uh, Dr. Massenat, is called in for a consultation. Okay. He also diagnoses, oh, it's cholera. Fine. Oh, it's cholera. And he prescribes eggnog (laughs) to strengthen, fortify the constitution. We could have had eggnog. We could have so many things other than chartreuse this is oh nick this is literally one of those episodes where you know sometimes we look up poisonings and there's no ingredients and you have to make up stuff so you have to go with the inspiration you went for the most obscure one and we have had deer we have had truffles we've had eggnog a delicious it's literally a drink why do you do this to me nick because you would enjoy this far too much and and generally you must suffer (laughs) (laughs) so eggnog was prescribed um, to Charles to, to get him through the, to get him through this. But Anna notices Marie taking a white powder from her malachite box and stirring it into the eggnog. In front of her? Well, she notices it, so I can't imagine she's too discreet. Or maybe she's peering around a corner. Peer, could, be, could be spying. But she asks Marie, what, what is it? What are you putting in there? And she says it's orange blossom sugar. Nice. Yes. Yet another uh, oh my god. Oh my... I'm not gonna. That, I'm not gonna say anything anymore, had. Nick. I just want everyone listening to this to make a mental note of every ingredient we could have had. Okay, orange blossom sugar. How delightful that sounds! Would I would have loved to have that in an eggnog. But maybe, maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs> when it's my episode next week, and I've got nothing. <laughs> I'm going to borrow one from... This is going to be... You know what? This is going to be the emergency episode for, <laughs> for, for ingredients to say we couldn't find anything. We're borrowing one. But Anna, say, becomes suspicious when she notices that a few of these white flakes are floating on the surface of the eggnog after Charles has taken a few mouthfuls. Um, she shows the glass to Dr. Massenet. He tastes the eggnog and experiences a severe burning sensation. But he attributes these flakes to some ceiling plaster that must have fallen down from the ceiling. It's an old tumble-downy ruin place. What? It's fine. Don't worry about it. What? You're but a little lady. You don't understand these things. (laughs) Is is Marie shagging him? (laughs) I don't know. 
I guess you would be used to going, what is in the surroundings? Because it's not the highest of hygiene. I don't think necessarily... Poisoning would not be the first thing you would leap to. Of course. You would not automatically assume someone's ill, therefore someone's trying to kill them. Whereas today, it's the first thing we all think of. The first thing you leap to. Because we've had a hundred bloody years of this. (laughs) But Anna is not convinced. Um, And she squirrels Ray some of the rest of the eggnog. And she keeps a close eye on Marie. She sees Marie stir more of this white powder, this orange blossom sugar, into some soup. Why you would have orange blossom sugar in the soup, I don't know. It depends if it was a kind of a carrot soup. This is... Mm. Again, Charles feels violently ill. After a few sips, Anna takes the soup away and again takes a sample of it. She musters the courage to tell Charles's family of her suspicions. But they they don't really pay much attention. They don't particularly believe her at this at this point. On the 12th of January in 1840, the family are gathered in the sick room, fearing the worst. Mm. Emma, the cousin who held Marie in such quite high regard, and they got on very well as he tells Marie of Anna's suspicions. Is Emma Pointer pointing the finger? Potentially, sir. Potentially, sir. I mean, Charles's mother is actually implores him not to take another morsel of food. Further panic ensues when they actually learn that uh, Charles's servant and gardener has bought more arsenic for Marie. Marie claims, again, for the rats. And so they think, yes, there are a lot of rats. So find the gardener. There? There's an awful lot of rats. Well, they're on the countryside. In and the countryside, it's bigger state. Water and for the foundry and there's everything. There's going to be a lot of rats around or so. <laughs> Half the family are rats in disguise. <laughs> the gardener is a rat. I mean, the family are so desperate that a third doctor is called. And then we're... And on the 13th of January, he arrives. He does suspect poisoning. Finally! He thinks something is happening here. This is not how cholera presents. If it was cholera, other people would be sick. The whole house would be ill. Finally, um, someone points this out. So something is, something is going awry, but it is too late. No. Charles dies, but a few hours after the doctor's visit, Charles is dead. Now, suspicions after that doctor's prognosis of that, the family are on high alert. They've already been told by Anna that Maria has been doing these, all these suspicious things. So instantly the finger is being pointed. But Maria is pretty much unfazed. She's not bothered about it. And she goes to the notary to, with the, the will, her husband's will, thinking that she is now going to get ownership of the whole estate, only to find that actually no. No. A new will has been drafted, has been written, and everything goes to the mother. Oh, that's got to sting. Which has got to be incredibly painful and if she has done this thing of poisoning her husband it's all for nothing absolutely all for nothing oh good god (laughs) emma she is the only one who now will talk to marie she tells marie that lafarge's brother charles's brother is going to go to the police a couple of days later the justice of the peace from breve arrives initially he's quite impressed by marie she's this young woman this widow she's being strong and somewhat less impressed by this rabble of a family. But what he does do is Anna takes the samples that she's taken of the eggnog and the soup. She gives them to this this police officer. The police asks Charles's doctor to perform a post-mortem examination. They have heard of a new test that can detect the presence of arsenic. Um, and they ask if they can apply the same test in this case. They've heard it's so successful. Doctor replies, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Of course I can. Of course I can. He has no idea how it works. <laughs> He's a provincial doctor. 
this new mystery test has not yet reached them. He's just putting a rat that. near them. Yeah. Will he die? Will he die? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the doctors doing the autopsy only know the old methods. The old methods to take arsenic, opening them up. Is there a shitload of arsenic? Yep, there we are. They know that they aren't overly reliable. They're sort of detecting the arsenic trisulfide, the, the white, mm. sort of yellow residue. But they perform these tests and they can come to the conclusion that huge quantities of arsenic are Ooh. present in Charles Lafarge's body. Part of the investigation, whether the police arrived at the house, they took a lot of the rat poison that had been left around the house by the gardener. Suspiciously, a lot of it was still remaining. Mm. It had untouched by rats. The rats are not interested in this rat poison, which is entirely the point of rat poison, is to attract the rats. Exactly. They They can't read. (laughs) So they take samples of this, and they discover there is no arsenic in the rat poison. What? The rat poison is a mixture of flour and water. So she substituted the rat poison. So what has happened to all this arsenic? arsenic? What has happened to all this arsenic that the gardener has bought? Any remaining doubts vanish when the small malachite box is handed into the police and they find it to contain arsenic. And that's the problem with having a small, beautiful box full of poison. Full of poison. Just just put it in a nondescript parcel or in a book or somewhere like that. If you have a beautifully inlaid malachite box. It's probably got like a skull and crossbones in ivory or something on the top or something like that. We learn nothing from poison rings. (laughs) Marie is arrested and she is held in jail in Breve. People come from all over the country to watch her murder trial. Marie enters the court of Tulle for the first time. On the 3rd of September, 1840, dressed all in black, in mourning for her dear husband. Oh. She's clutching a small bottle of smelling salts in her hand, in case it all gets too much. If we ever go to court, can we please walk in <laughs> in a black dress with smelling salts? Big sort of bombazine black. Oh, totally. Going totally. On. She is projecting the image of a woman unjustly accused, vilified unnecessarily. One of Marie's defence lawyers has been involved in a previous case with a famous scientist throughout France by the name of... Matthew Orfler. Yes, Matthew Orfler. I'm glad you know him. I do, I have heard of him. He is the acknowledged expert of the Marsh Test in France. Mm. Um, And the lawyer realises that the case is hinged largely on these tests made by the Breve doctors. He writes to Orfler and shows him the test results. Orfler comes back pretty quickly with a a statement and that's submitted to the court. And he says these tests are conducted so ignorantly that they mean nothing absolutely nothing i mean as soon as the brief doctors testify that arsenic is present the lawyer reads out this statement from this renowned expert hmm. that this is utter nonsense that what these that what these chaps have have come up with oh he he tells them all about the marsh test and how effective it is how reliable it is and he demands that awful himself be called in to redo all these tests i mean the prosecutor I mean, he is so confident of Marie's guilt that he has no objection to these tests being redone. But he says it's such a cut and dry case. It's so obvious. There's no need to disturb such a eminent doctor, physician. We know now how to do the Marsh test. We'll get some other doctors oh, and no. they can carry out the same thing. Not, not other doctors. Um, no, no, no. No, 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 no. No more doctors get, must be involved in people. this. We don't need to bother Orfler. So three, two apothecaries and a chemist are assigned to conduct the test. When they finally enter the courtroom, everyone waits to see what they say. And they testify that despite using the Marsh test carefully, rigorously exactly following the instructions they fail to find any arsenic whatsoever there's nothing no arsenic anywhere the courtroom goes into an uproar marie feels entirely vindicated prosecutor is horrified his case is slipping away from him but the prosecutor 
has been doing his research as well. And he knows that in some cases, arsenic actually leaves the stomach and spreads to other parts of the body. Oh, so they only tested the stomach? They only tested the stomach contents ah, at this fair point. Enough. Everything else has been buried. And he calls for the body of Lafarge to be exhumed. Dig him up! Dig him up! Again, the th- same three chemists perform tests on other samples that have taken. Again, no arsenic is found. In I'm starting in favour of Marie here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Though the prosecutor has one card left to play. Ask her, did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> the food that Marie has given to Charles and they were set aside by Anna. Ah, that Anna the, had the eggnog and the soup and the samples that have been taken. And he requests that the test is performed on those items as well. Okay. I mean, at this point, the defence is having a great time. Go for it. You're doing yeah, my oh, job yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. This time, the chemists arrive in the courtroom and they declare positive. They <gasps> have found arsenic. The eggnog alone contains enough to poison 10 persons, they say. The prosecutor takes this as a chance as to sort of recoup his earlier setbacks. And he declares that in view of these are massively contradictory results, something is awry. We need to get an expert who can settle this once and for all. And they do call in Orphila. Orphila! And since it was the defence who had originally requested him, can't. they can't now go, oh, actually, no, we don't think it's a good idea now. And Orfila is called. When he arrives, he insists that the local chemist actually witness his experiments, how he does this. Oh, that's... No, <laughs> so that's... That's... He, so, oh. he wants to rub their faces in it. You are terrible, terrible scientist. That's like, yes. you know, the detective walking into the small town. That is in the heat of the night. Sidney Poitier <laughs> walking in, showing Rod Steiger how it's done, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And he does it that very night. He uses the same test materials, the same chemical reagents, and they perform the test in the, in the courthouse in a small room just outside, just off the courtroom, behind locked and guarded doors. At last, on the afternoon of the next day, Orfila enters the courtroom, followed by three slightly embarrassed chemists <laughs> their, head, their heads bowed and he declares that arsenic has been found in all the samples again the apothecary, the witch doctor <laughs> the chemist who was just there who has a shop failed to spot it twice they did the test wrong they were given these instructions they thought they knew what they were doing they weren't it using was... the right bowls <laughs> they weren't using the right bowls they yeah they just didn't know what they were doing courtroom is stunned Especially the, the defence, because they are absolutely... <laughs> they are now... Ah, oh, fuck. This, this, this chap that we asked to be here has now, yeah, implicated our client in the in the case. As these details are read out in court and Orphila explains exactly what, what has happened, uh, it does not take the jury long to decide of Marie's guilt. She is found guilty. And in the end, despite passionate pleadings of the lawyers, um, Marie is sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labour. <laughs> She's taken to Montpellier to serve out her sentence. Mm-hmm. However, King Louis-Philippe himself intervenes wow. in her sentence and reduces it to life without hard labour. Oh, okay. She was probably, she. I think she must have been of a certain status in society. And there was the connection Links through the grandmother and things of the, yeah. to aristocracy. Oh, well, the king um, steps in. So the king steps in and says, no, it's still life, but we can get rid of the hard labour. Twelve years later... In June 1852, Marie is stricken with tuberculosis while in prison. Mm. She is released by Napoleon III. Wow! Compassionate grounds sets her free, but she dies six months later. <sighs> and still protesting her innocence. Really? Still protesting her innocence. I this is a case that completely divided French society. There were people who were absolutely convinced that she was entirely innocent, nothing to do with her, and other people that she was daughter of the devil. She was evil incarnate because of what she had done. Wow. Um, and it's still considered now that, no, that it could have been a miscarriage of justice. 
no one is entirely sure. Interesting. And that is the story. That is the story of Marie Lafarge, the first person convicted with using the Marsh test, test, using forensic toxicology. Yay! So there we go. Fascinating. So she's she's not high on the bastardometer. I'm going to come right out there and say that. No, I don't think so. It can't be possible that this was a miscarriage of justice. I, I think she probably did do it. Well, she's obviously worrying about her status in society. She's not had the life that she envisaged. She no. may have been, even in those circumstances, everyone's problems are their own, but she's probably been taunted and always looked down on and yes. always been made to know that she was never as good as everyone else. She is then married off, promised all of this life, rocks up in a seven brides for seven brothers kind of style <laughs> yeah, exactly. up to this wreck that she now has to deal with. She's rolled up her sleeve. She's going to work with her husband. They seem to have some sort of accord. And then, then yeah, then he's... Then why he's... she decides to kill him? Did she know about the will? That's the thing that well, I'm wondering. Had she worked out that the mother so. was going to get everything and she had done all of this, she just signed her will over to him and he had still, after all of this, no excuse for murder ever, but that would be the, the straw that breaks the camel's so, yeah. back. It would be the, are you absolutely kidding me? <laughs> but then again, but if she knew about the will... Then why would she do it? Because she wasn't going to get anything. Why would she do it? Maybe just for spite? For spite or anger? Well, maybe she was just fed up. Maybe she was fed um, up of rebuilding his house. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a thinker. It's a strange one. Because Manusi, whoever, assuming it was her, or whoever was poisoning him, had done so, the first instance we know is in the, probably in that Christmas cake that went Yee. over in December. And then this was stretched over about a month, middle end of January. Yeah. when he finally dies. So this was not a, a heat of the moment. This was a planned, <laughs> deliberate thing of different levels of arsenic in all different types of food. Whether it was her or not, whoever did it, it was a meticulously planned sequence. But then again, with arsenic, there is enough information at that time to know that little and often will not attract suspicion of poison. If you give him a massive yeah, dose no, of poison... Absolutely. But saying, I mean, she probably would have been better off if she had done, because they could have just blamed it on cholera. And they could have just gone, oh, yeah, no, he's fine. No one would have suspected a thing about of poisoning would have been better than the, oh, he, she keeps slipping this food in. She probably yeah. thought he was doing the right thing. Oh, my God. What if, what if she was having an affair with a gardener? <laughs> no. Think about it. The gardener, if he was beneath her sexy though nah. lady chatley's lover come on think what if he's hot what if he's hot he's her husband is a coarse man we've said he's got rough hair everywhere probably <laughs> he's the not gardener would, the gardener would be slick back and perfumed younger and... sexier attractive not not of the world but maybe we he's know you know what you know no. what maybe he's read a book maybe he's read a book maybe he's learned in his past maybe his mother was a librarian somewhere in France <laughs> and sexy gardener he helped her he went to get the bloody poison he's shagging the gardener I'm just saying it's a theory <laughs> it's no it is a theory can't argue with it being a theory <laughs> <laughs> but she definitely did it I think I think it's very likely yeah yeah it's very very likely that she did this proves nothing it is doctors are the greatest poison of them <laughs> all to a, a back, then, back then absolutely yes. nowadays you are heroes <laughs> but for god's sake how many apothecaries and doctors <laughs> and druggists and chemists does it take for people to go hmm eggnog is the solution to everything so well, there we go there we Another go story continuing the story of the marsh test so famous indeed changed arsenic for everyone the rest <laughs> well, of the poisons absolutely fine yeah you can go with anything else you like arsenic is now off the list well what do you think of marie was she a cold-blooded killer <laughs> or was she just a woman trapped in a series of disney films <laughs> 
did she find those barrels of chartreuse in the barn? <laughs> <laughs> the chartreuse is a thing that poisoned her mind. We can all relate to that. No one tested for chartreuse. No. Just saying, no one tested for chartreuse. They may have found arsenic, but no that's test. how she got there it in. There is no test for chartreuse. There's no cure for chartreuse. <laughs> what do you think of the story as ever? Come and talk to us on social media. Tell us your theories and your thoughts and your ideas about this crazy woman. Also... Mix up a rye hummingbird. Indeed, the recipe will be on the socially things later on today. Um, and try one. If you don't have chartreuse, try it without. It adds something lovely, but if you don't like it, I think it'll still be a very nice cocktail without. Very nice. I did drink it. Did. I did drink all of it, and it was nice. Yes. But you know what? Put the chartreuse in it. If, if you're going to recreate it, get some chartreuse people, so you can either side with Nick, or you can join me on the same side of cocktail <laughs> world, and agree that it's the devil's piss. <laughs> If you like what you hear, if you haven't already, please, 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 please leave us a review on Apple iTunes. If you are new to the podcast, we know there are some new people who have joined us and we love you. Thank you so much for joining us. Apple podcast reviews mean so much to us. Please leave us a lovely review, a five star. If you're going to leave a one star, just come and talk to us privately. We'll we'll change. It's fine. (laughs) I'll do whatever you like. (laughs) We'll do whatever you want. We'll make you feel real good. Comment, like, share the post, tell your friends about The Poisonous Cabinet. And do go and check our Patreon out. Indeed, if you do like what you listen to, you like our ramblings and our cocktails, then Patreon is the place for you, where there are more ramblings and more cocktails and more general silliness of Sinead taking the piss out of me. And Nick just being horrible to me. It's what you're here for, though. As someone said, actually, (laughs) in one of the messages, friendship goals. (laughs) Well, we have been the people inside the Poisoner's Cabinet. We will see you next week. And remember... Your loved ones are trying to kill you.